Hello, everyone. In Decatur, Alabama, on the banks of the Tennessee River, there's a large manufacturing facility for food manufacturing run by Wayne Farms. And the Occupational Safety and Health Administration issued a citation against Wayne Farms under the machine guarding standard when one of its employees reaching into a breading machine got his sleeve caught, which pulled his hand in, leading to a serious injury. We're gonna talk about the Wayne Farms case, the machine guarding standard and what it means for employers as a result of a review commission decision on that case today on the June 16th, 2021 episode of the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. Hello everyone, I'm Manish Rath with the OSHA 3030. I'm an attorney here at the law firm Keller and Heckman in Washington, DC. I am an attorney who practices in the field of occupational safety and health law. And I'm joined today, and I'm very grateful to be joined today by my colleague and friend, John Gustafson, who is one of our OSHA attorneys and also engages in other areas of law, including TSCA, FIFRA, uh, California's Prop 65. John, welcome. And thank you, by the way, for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Manish. It's been a few months, and so I'm grateful that uh, we're able to work on this together. And and I think we got a great case today. Um, Absolutely. And yeah. yes, always nice to be on the OSHA 3030. <laughs> well, it's always nice to have you. Let's talk, John, about what we're going to talk about. Uh, sure. So, so we talked about the Wayne Farms case. And yeah. And I, and I think that uh, if, you, if we break down some of the things we're going to talk about, maybe we can, we can get into it. Right, right. So today we will be discussing that opinion. Uh, we'll start by giving some background on the machine guarding OSHA standard. We'll then talk about the facts of the Wayne Farms case, both what happened on, in the facility uh, and then also important testimony that was given during the hearing uh, in front of the administrative law judge. And that is the uh, level below the commission. Then we'll talk about uh, the commission's decision on appeal and, and focus on uh, the opinion's main question, which was whether the employee access to the hazard that caused the injury was reasonably predictable during normal operation of the machine. Uh, we'll then discuss the meaning of this opinion, and I think it's very meaningful um, in terms of, you know, what employee, what is expected of employers. Uh, and then some takeaways for em employers that are watching. And finally, uh, Manish, we're going to then go to the off the record segment. That's right. This is a, a new feature that we're putting into the OSHA 3030 starting with 2021. Uh, after the program is over, we will shut off all of the recordings that we use to rebroadcast this as a podcast and on YouTube. And when the recordings are off, it is just a live webinar unrecorded where people can pre-submit questions uh, in the days leading into the OSHA 3030. We'll also keep the question and answer box open in case somebody has a question. But this could be about anything relating to OSHA if it, uh, law. If it's a black letter law 
uh, question that we can answer off the top of my, our head. We'll answer probably two or three after the OSHA program is done. That program we call off the record. We have two, by the way, interesting questions that were pre-submitted by members of the community. One of them relates to OSHA just published its emergency temporary standard on COVID-19. And, and so we'll talk real briefly about addressing that participant's question. And then, then there was a decision that came out of a federal court uh, in Texas uh, relating to also COVID-19 where a, an employer required everybody at the workplace to come back to work with vaccinations as a precondition of returning to work. Uh, so we had one uh, inquiry about that case and I'm happy to talk about that one because I think that's incredibly impactful. So with that said, that's the off the record portion that'll happen at the end of our program. Let's get into uh, John, the Wayne Farms case and let's start by just talking about the machine guarding standard generally. Absolutely, right. So that was the standard that was at issue in Wayne Farms, the machine guarding standard. And that standard requires employers to provide one or more methods of machine guarding to protect the operator and employees that are in the machine area from hazards. So if we think about what the standard is requiring, it's requiring a safety result uh, rather than a specific type of guard for this machine. So OSHA is saying, we don't care how you achieve this result, but you have to protect your employer employees from the hazards posed by these machines. And so that is called a performance standard. And to satisfy or to meet the requirements of the standard, an employer has to identify the hazards that are specific to their workplace and then determine what steps are necessary to abate those identified hazards. And just as an employer has to do a uh, facility-specific uh, inquiry analysis, so too must the uh, administrative law judge and the commission on appeal. They look at what was necessary in the context uh, of the machine and the operation of the facility, and that's what the commission looked at in Wayne Farms. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And the fact that it's a performance standard and not a specification standard uh, makes the burden, I think, for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration a little tougher if they want to establish that a violation occurred. Because uh, once you acknowledge that, you're, that the agency is trying to enforce a performance standard, there, there's a lot of leeway for how an employer achieves the end result that uh, results in, in uh, a safe working environment, in the case of machine guarding, a properly guarded machine. Uh, and and so, so the burden for OSHA is to establish that the standard even applies, and then that it applies, that it was complied with sufficiently, uh, which is, is, I think, uh, moving beyond the four corners of the standard itself to do so. So with that said, let's talk about what the elements are in an OSHA complaint uh, and how to make a, a machine guarding standard. Uh, to begin with, John, should I, should I walk through this? Sure. So to begin with, in order to make a machine guarding citation to establish a violation, the agency has to establish that the cited standard here, section 212, the machine guarding standard, applies to the circumstances being alleged uh, in, in the citation. Then OSHA has to allege that 
and establish that the, there was a failure to comply with the standard. Uh, so, so the machine guarding standard being a performance standard, I think this is a tough one. And this is, in this particular case, this is what the review commission focused on uh, is whether or not the, the employer in fact failed to comply with the standard. Uh, and then whether there were any employees exposed to the uh, allegedly violative condition. Uh, it is theoretically possible for a standard to apply for there to be a circumstance that is on its face not in compliance with a standard, but there be there might be no employee exposure, and thus uh, a, a critical element of uh, establishing a violation has been, uh, is missing, and and OSHA would not be able to establish a violation in that event. And then finally, that the employer knew or through the exercise of reasonable diligence should have known of the violative condition. So again, you may have a violative condition that nobody has access to, and the employer, even through exercising reasonable diligence, wouldn't reasonably be expected to discover. And in that event, it is theoretically possible that a administrative law judge or uh, the review commission might find that that was not a violative condition. So with that said, let's talk about the Wayne Farms case. Now that we've, we've level set everyone on on the elements that OSHA has to establish and, and the fact that the machine guarding standard is itself a performance standard. Right. Um, so, so first we'll go through the, uh, what normally happens at this Wayne Farms facility, uh, and then we'll move to what happened in this particular instance. So this Decatur, Alabama, uh, facility uses an AccuFeeder machine to bread its chicken uh, on its production line 53. And this machine has a, uh, is loaded with chicken. And then an employee pours flour through a hinged and latched metal grate into an enclosed hopper. So this, this, um, grate has holes in it, the flour is poured through the holes, uh, but this the, the grate is both latched on one side and hinged on the other. Um, and this, this latch can be screwed down so that the inside of the machine is completely inaccessible. Now this hopping does not happen at the grate level, it happens well below the level of the grate, two feet below the grate. So for an employer, for an employee to, to reach the hopping area in the machine, they would really have to make an effort. Um, these, the facility, the D Decatur, Alabama facility has three shifts. So it, it runs for two daytime operational shifts. And uh, on some days, when the days that the hopper is used, it will run for both of those shifts. And then it will be turned off at the end of the second shift and the overnight cleaning shift will begin. Um, and this during, you know, it's a, it's a poultry processing facility. So it needs to be thoroughly cleaned. Uh, the entire facility is cleaned and the machine's automated cleaning function is turned on. And a part of that cleaning is to remove uh, flour that adheres to the interior of the hopper uh, as a result of its uh, daytime operation. This is interesting. And like, it's important that you talk about the shifts because like many of the food manufacturers that, that I visited and we represent a great many, 
we, we see that the third shift is a cleaning shift where all the machinery is cleaned out. And, and the reason this is important is because this injury occurred in the first shift and the employee said that he was reaching in uh, to, cl to clean out the inside of the hopper uh, of Kate Flower. But that, that really is the purpose of the third shift cleaning crew. And that's elemental to, to the review commission's decision. Right. So it raises the question and, and we'll tackle this in a minute, but does flour adheres to the inside of the hopper. So can that flour wait until the cleaning shift or is it, must it be cleaned during the day, during the daytime operational shifts? So, but uh, let's continue with the, the facts of what happened uh, with this particular employee. So this employee, as Manish stated, this employee was working that first daytime shift. He lifted the metal grate, um, which was unlatched at the time. So, so as we just talked about, the, the grate can be screwed down on one side, uh, on the latch side, but it was unscrewed at the time. So open the metal grate, he reached inside to clean the flower that adhere, ad, was adhering to the interior. And while doing that, uh, and his smock got caught by the paddles that do the hopping. So the, the paddles that ordinarily are jostling the chicken and the flower, breading the chicken, uh, his smock got caught in there and it pulled his arm and his hand down into the machine uh, at which point his injury occurred both to the arm and hand. So OSHA, uh, after this injury, OSHA inspected and they issued a one item serious citation alleging violation of the machine guard standard and Manish, uh, even though a serious citation may carry a small monetary penalty, it could still have major consequences both to a company's operations and uh, you know, requiring substantial changes to their operation, but also to a company's competitive position when they're vying for bids. Yeah, it, it totally makes sense uh, for employers in many circumstances to contest even a single citation item with uh, a small monetary penalty because the, the penalty, as you say, is, is just the smallest fraction of the implications of, of taking a serious citation. Uh, so, so Wayne Farms did contest the citation when it was issued. Uh, this is an interesting case because uh, we, we see that the employee in the first shift which is the shift right after the cleaning crew had come in and clean the machine, believed that he needed to uh, remove some caking. And here we have a, an image that, that's somewhat illustrative of the machine itself. So there's a screw auger and, and the, the, the uh, product comes in and feeds through. And it's in that kind of uh, machinery that the employee got his sleeve caught, pulled his hand in, and he, and he, his hand was seriously injured. Uh, he later went to the hospital, by the way, and uh, they performed surgery, and I believe he lost two fingers. So it's a serious injury. Uh, well, the reason this is interesting is because the, the cleaning company, uh, the cleaning crew had just come in. He believed that he needed to do so anyways to take some caked flour off, 
many employees said that this wasn't a necessary task for shift one empl production employees. And uh, he did so with his, his uh, bare hand, without a tool, without any device, without shutting the machine down. He lifted up the, the guarding, the grate, the hinged grate, uh, and reached in and with his own hand started to uh, declump the, the flour product. Uh, when this went to trial, lots of witnesses came up and testified. Uh, other employees testified that they had received training and that they were told not to open the grate and never to reach below the level of the grate. Uh, when the team leader testified at trial, he testified that he had seen the employee in question stick his hand below the grate once before and told him, hey, stop that, don't do that, you're not supposed to do that. Another coworker said he'd also seen the employee stick his hand in the hopper in the past and also told him, hey, don't do that, you don't need to stick your hand in there. Uh, the employee himself was put on the stand and his testimony was a little bit less consistent. He said uh, that he said that the employee uh, th that the employee training did not include uh, any kind of training about not sticking your hand in there. He didn't know about it and that he'd never been taught not to stick his hand in below the grate. And he said that uh, further, he didn't recollect being told not to. However, on the day of the actual injury, others testified that the first thing he said when he got his hand caught and coworkers came running towards him was, oh, oh, you told me not to do this and I did it. Uh, what a mistake. Uh, I know you told me not to. Um, and, and so that testimony is inconsistent. He, he certainly acknowledged that he had been reprimanded in the past. The question that the Review Commission focused on, and I think that this is substantially different than the question that the administrative law judge focused on was really whether or not he needed to, in the normal course of business, clean the uh, flour from being caked from the inside of the, the machine. Uh, was it ever necessary for a first shift worker coming in right after it had been cleaned to, to uh, remove the flour caked on the inside? Other employees had testified that even if there was sufficient caking to be addressed, that they were able to solve the problem by knocking on the outside of the hopper maybe with a stick or other object, and it just sort of vibrates the hopper and uh, decakes any, anything sticking to the product. So all of these facts, plus the fact that it had already been cleaned and he was a first shift worker, not a cleaning company worker or a cleaning shift worker, led to the review commission evaluating whether or not his access below the great level was even within the normal course of business. And if it wasn't, the Review Commission questioned whether or not the machine guarding requirements applied or applied were sufficiently complied with by the grade. So the Review Commission at this time, at the time of this decision, uh, they had a full commission, uh, which included uh, Amanda Woodleahy, Cynthia Atwood, uh, and the chair, Commissioner Jim Sullivan, uh, who is, has, has since left the commission. John, let's talk about that commission decision. Right. Um, so the commission vacated the vacated OSHA's citations, but it did so on different grounds than the administrative law judge. So the, the administrative law judge or ALJ found that the secretary failed to prove that the employer had exposed the employee to the violative condition. Manish, that was the third 
uh, element of the citation that you identified. But the commission found that the Secretary of Labor failed to prove the second element, uh, which was non-compliance with the machine guarding standard. And the first, the first question, as Manish alluded, the, the, the question to this uh, compliance element is whether the access to the hazard was not was or was not reasonably predictable in the normal operation of the machine. And that's in its context in the facility. And the commission found that the hazard was not uh, reasonably predictable um, and applied to the facts here. The, the commission found that manual cleaning of the hopper was not required during its normal operation. So the, in other words, the employee uh, cleaned manually and did not need to do so, was trained not to do so. And that cleaning was not, uh, was not part of the normal operation. And so that the exposure to the hazard was not part of the op, uh, normal operation or reasonably predictable. Um, so, so the, the, commission found that that element was lacking um, and, and based its decision on that element in part on the testimony and credibility findings of the administrative law judge and that and the hearing. Um, and, and the commission opined that the injury resulted from the intentional idiosyncratic behavior of only one employee. So this, this employee's injury was caused by their own divergent practice and therefore did not meet the second citation element uh, non-compliance with the machine guarding standard. So yeah, let's it, talk. Yeah, it all comes down to how the machine is supposed to be used. The commission said the non-compliance at stake right here in this case is whether or not the grate covering that covers the hopper was even required to protect employees from hazards such as those created by the AccuFeeders uh, auger or paddles or in running nip pints. And the review commission said to make this determination, they were interested in whether or not the grate was necessary when considering the manner in which the machine functions and how it is supposed to be operated by employees. Uh, and as you say, this was a type of activity by the employee that was considered a deliberate, intentional, idiosyncratic, sort of non-compliant uh, practice uh, right. that went directly against training, directly against several reprimands. Uh, and I think that that is an incredibly important decision by a very capable uh, commission panel uh, like the panel composition prior to this one, uh, this is a, a, a panel of, of, of the Review Commission that's, that, that sees through these issues and, and I think went straight to the gravamen of the case. And I, and I think they did a good job of that. John? Right. And not this is not a commission that is always aligned. So when they are aligned, it's, it's a powerful statement. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, they pointed out that the, the question of whether or not the hopper even needed to be manually cleaned during first shift seemed to be an important pivotal 
threshold question to address. And uh, the administrative law judge concluded that manual cleaning wasn't required during shift one. And I point out two things, the fact that it was shift one and the fact that we're talking about manual cleaning as opposed to a proper cleaning method, which would have uh, involved not using, reaching your hand below the grate uh, level. And uh, they, they came to the conclusion that, that there was never an instance where employees were expected, requested, instructed, or trained to, uh, in the regular course of business or operation of the machine to place their hands below that level where the metal grate was. And that was two, two feet above any in-running in running nip points. Right. So let's talk about what this means. So this is a, an important decision. I think it's an incredibly important decision in the machine Absolutely. guarding standard now. Yeah. And, and it's one of the, the few cases where the review commission has shed some light on this question, not within the, the auspices of the unpreventable employee misconduct defense, but rather whether or not this kind of idiosyncratic behavior really goes to the scope of the applicability of the standard in the first place and whether or not that kind of idiosyncratic behavior is the kind of uh, conduct to be guarded against in the machine guarding standard. Right. So, so it, it really addresses, the opinion addresses the degree to which an employer is responsible for its employees' divergent work practices. How, what level of predictability is required here? Does an employer need to guard against any possible hazard that a an employee could find themselves in even as a result of their own divergent work practice that's uh, idiosyncratic behavior. And, and the commission here really drew a line in the sand and said that employers don't need to, uh, are, or they're not liable for hazards uh, that are not reasonably predictable during normal operation. Right. I'd say one last thing before we move on to this practical takeaway section that we always uh, implement in the OSHA 3030, the, the, the section called what employers should do. One last thing I'd say is this is a question of whether or not the standard was violated or whether the Secretary of Labor can establish a violation. But as a question of best practice where the machine guarding standard is concerned, there clearly was a grate. It had a hinge on one side and it was designed at least to accommodate a screw to fasten it on the other on the opening end and that screw that that screwed end or that latch end was unscrewed the screw was missing i believe so here we have a a, a type of covering or a type of guarding where if it's not frequently accessed the screw should have been in place or uh, at a minimum we can say that uh, that that regular maintenance and uh, observation and inspection is a, is a practice that could have uh, uncovered the fact that it was unscrewed. But if it's a, a hinged grate that is accessed quite frequently, there are other methodologies that, that can be implemented to, to achieve a good guarding practice, such as interlocking uh, devices for the grate and uh, the use of tools, which they did use. Uh, and so, so we're, we're really focusing in the Wayne Farms decision on the question of law of whether this constitutes a violation, given that the employee had no business and couldn't reasonably be expected to, to engage in that kind of repetitive conduct, despite being told many times not to, rather than what would be a best guarding practice 
where I think interlocking that grate would have would have been a a practice that they could have they could consider. Uh, with that said, let's talk about what employers should do. John, I think the first thing that I like to see is it's a hazard assessment where predictable hazards are are identified and that the employer documents what protections would address those those uh, perhaps reasonably foreseeable uh, hazards. Right, and then documenting training and work processes is, is another important important takeaway here. We saw how influential the uh, testimony about work practices was in the decision. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, so, so when you just take a look at machine guarding and lockout tagout, for example, and the training required uh, to document for each employee when they were trained, what they were trained on, the content needs to be preserved. Uh, and and I, I prefer, I think as a gold standard, uh, that there, there be some testing for comprehension, maybe a demonstrative test is even a higher level of uh, uh, comprehension evaluation and, and that that be recorded as well. And then if there's multiple refresher trainings that all of that be re recorded and preserved. Uh, here, as you say, there was plenty of evidence that the, the employees had been trained on how to do this the right way. The next thing I'd say, John, I think it's important to include a, um, a question of safety compliance when uh, evaluating employee performance, that employees should be measured at least in part by their safety practices. Uh, and I think that's, that this is consistent with OSHA's view that management and, and the safety culture has to come from the top down, come from management, uh, but, but that the rank and file, every single employee has a role to play in, in safety in the workplace. Right, and going along with uh safety compliance of employees, uh, compliance with trained practices is reprimanding employees where they diverge uh, when necessary and making sure that that happens in writing. There needs to be a written record of any employees or any um, any divergent work practice. Yeah, John, that includes verbal reprimands. Even when you give a verbal reprimand, uh, a manager or supervisor or foreman needs to make a record that a verbal reprimand was given, what it was given for, the date, et cetera. Um, the question of whether or not practices that are trained and in the written policies are informally uh, ignored uh, needs to be addressed and documented. And there has to, you have to constantly preserve evidence that this is a living policy and not just uh, one that you write, put up on a shelf, but don't don't practice on a daily basis. But that, that in part comes from the discipline, the monitoring, the walkthrough inspections, et cetera. And then just updating these understandings, you know, bringing this back to step one periodically. Uh, what are the hazards in the workplace? Are we doing everything uh, we need to do to protect employees from hazards? And then the walkthroughs to, on the daily walkthroughs, make sure everyone's doing it right. Well, John, you got the last word on today's OSHA 3030, and thank you again. Uh, all, we've been doing this for over eight years, and all of our prior episodes uh, are, are libraried on our website at khlaw.com. Please check them out. Many of them are still extremely relevant, extremely educational. Uh, so, so go through the, the library on a year-by-year -year basis, find topics you like, and you'll find that the slides, the sound, uh, are, are all uh, recorded and available in self-executing files. Uh, our 
next OSHA 3030 will be coming up in another 30 days. That's the title. Uh, we'll rebroadcast this episode as we have for the past five or six episodes, and we're trying to get more and more up on the library on YouTube. So when you go to YouTube, just do a search on Keller and Heckman, and you'll find quite a few of the OSHA 3030 episodes. Uh, we're all on LinkedIn. John Gustafson, I know you're on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Our colleagues, Larry Halpern, David Cervati are all on LinkedIn as well. So please link in with us if you haven't yet. Uh, and we're going to rebroadcast this episode as a podcast as well. So subscribe to the podcast uh, on your favorite podcast app. And, and make sure, please, to like or rate uh, the program so that it's more easily searchable for others, which reminds me of a request I make every episode. When you get the next invitation to the OSHA 3030, please forward that on to at least three other people, even if you've already done so before, find three more people who are professionals in safety and health or in-house counsel in the corporate office of general counsel at your organization or at other organizations uh, who might be uh, interested in staying up to date on critical developments in OSHA law. Uh, our next program will be in about 30 days, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, next time July is July 21. Our sister programs uh, will be coming up the week before that, the TOSCA and REACH 3030, are scheduled for July 14th, 2021. And if you would like to have another episode of the fifth for 3030, send an email to John Gustafson. I'm sure he'd want to hear from you what topics you might have in mind and, uh, and what, what kind of timeframes work for you. That's it for today's OSHA 3030. On behalf of everyone here at Callan Heckman, I wanna thank everyone in, don't, but don't go away. We're gonna have the off the record session uh, once we turn off the recordings. But on behalf of everyone at Callan Heckman, I'd like to thank you all for participating and listening in on this month's OSHA 3030. John Gustafson, I'd like to thank you as well for, for uh, being a co-presenter in today's program. 